Coming up on the Jan Broberg Show. I really think if I had had a lot more of that, there definitely could have something else could have happened. I, I don't, I don't hang out on like my life could have been like this or my life could have. I don't know that. that, but definitely for speaking to somebody else, got to catch it young. You know, start getting the help young, as young as possible. Hey, everybody, I want to talk to you a little bit more about our upcoming podcast. On the show, we are not afraid to talk about the difficult conversations around child abuse and what we can do to make a change and how we can heal so we aren't living a life based in the past from our trauma, but we are thriving in the present. We want everyone to thrive, so we invite real everyday people to share their stories We talk with special guests and experts who can give us insights, tips, and advice. We also release bonus content for our Patreon subscribers in the form of roundtables where we discuss a current topic in the news. We laugh a lot, but we also get into some really deep conversations. This show is not for children, and there may be language to which some are sensitive. You can also find our bleeped episodes on our website, thejambrobergshow.com. Wonderful. And here we are with the one and only Carrie. (laughs) Hi, Carrie. (laughs) I'm very happy to have you on the Jam Broberg show today. And Carrie's really special. We met because she sent, basically started telling me a little bit about herself and her story. And now we've become really good friends. And she's actually, you know, when we talk about our stories, our survival stories. A lot of times, you know, there's a dominant type of abuse that is present for the the person that that kind of, you know, their story revolves around. But in Carrie's case, it really is is I don't know. It just breaks my heart. But it feels to me like Carrie, you you've had every kind of abuse, and because of that, it makes you uniquely um, an empath for others. And she's also so committed to the advocacy part of what we're doing um, at the Jan Proberg Foundation that she is going to be a key player administrator in our online community. And I think because of your experiences and because they cover so many areas of abuse and survival and and also the things that you're doing to um, try and give back and, and continue forward on your own healing journey like me, you make the perfect, the perfect friend for um <laughs> for me and for the Jan Broberg Foundation as a whole. And I really am thrilled that you would open up and tell your story. Um, to our listeners today. And I just, I just hope you know that there's a lot of warmth and empathy coming through this uh, Zoom, (laughs) this Zoom modality when we can't sit together in person. Sometimes I wonder if you can feel, you know, the love and the empathy that, that I feel for you. Um, Because, you know, we're, I, I know this is our, our new reality in our new world of Zoom and and online, you know, 
but sometimes I just feel like I want to put my arms around somebody and you're that person today. I wish I could put my arms around you and hug you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Air hugs, I guess, is what is what we'll have to to deal with today. So anyway, welcome to the Jan Broberg Show. And thank you so much for being vulnerable and for opening up and sharing your story with me. Um, First, uh, of course, through other methods and not here on the podcast. And now, once again, sharing it with the public. I think there is a certain amount of work that you have to have done maybe to be ready for this kind of a public, or maybe you you aren't ready and you don't know what it's going to do, how it might affect you when you open up this way. But have you ever shared your story really publicly before um, with anyone in particular that has really made a difference in your life? Um. So, I mean, I've definitely shared uh, bits and pieces of it a lot, um, primarily in not necessarily the best setting, but um, AA and NA meetings. Um, I uh, and then over time that got less and less. And um, you know, now with my healing, I I don't need to um, mention it. I'll mention it to strangers, but I used to. <laughs> Yeah, it's hardcore. Um, yeah, so um, kind of sad for some of the people <laughs> that had to to listen, but it helped me, and I really want to go thank you know the people that that um, that was part of my process. My healing got to be talked about. You know, yeah, isn't that amazing that it's the it's in others listening that we find our voice, um, and when we find our voice we truly do enter a new, you know, a new stepping stone on the path of healing because part of the problem with the abuse that we suffer as children is that there's so much silence and there's so much confusion as to who do I tell? Do I tell? What would I tell? Do I even have any words to tell? Which most of the time, you know, children and young people don't. And it's very, very rare that a person, when they are young, actually shares or feels like they have any power because they're little and they don't have the power. And I really um, admire that you actually shared um, that process of being in an AA or an NA meeting and sharing in that kind of a group setting. Because a lot of what our foundation and the online community is based on are those same kinds of principles of AA and NA, where you come together as a group already knowing pretty much everybody's story because you're there with a shared experience that um, you are now um, in a room with people who are no strangers to what you're going through. And that's what I feel is um, really fantastic about being able to share on our podcast where we tell you know, survivor stories and people listening have also most likely suffered trauma, suffered suffered some sort of abuse perhaps, or are suffering trauma through another method, whether it's a health crisis or it's uh, in relationships or it's uh, they've been conned, you know, they've been uh, groomed. And so when you come to us um, with your open heart and your open mouth to share your story, just what can you tell me about your experience and start anywhere that you feel comfortable as just an opening into the world that Carrie and how Carrie grew up 
as a young child and person? Okay. Um, yeah, so I was born in Escondido, um, California, and uh, my mom uh, was 22. She had already, I was her fourth child, and she was 22, um, and then she was having some trouble with substance use and, um, you know, in, income and stuff like that. And at the time, she was also sick with hepatitis A, so she was having trouble taking care of me. The neighbors next door, Ron and Deborah, um, had noticed that I wasn't being taken care of and um, kept asking her uh, if, you know, they could adopt me. And um, her other first three children had gone to her, her mom because she wasn't able to take care of them. They were legally adopted by her mom. Um, but at that time, I could not be adopted to her mom because her mom was also sick. So it's just a fluke. Um, There's six kids total. I'm the one, uh, I'm the only one that uh, did not get raised um, with the rest of them. But anyway, my birth mom finally, finally agreed to sign a 30 day, you can take care of her for 30 days. And they took me and they left the state um, to Arizona and then further over to Chicago. Um, Chicago, Illinois, and there was a court battle. Um, for, at first, uh, they were supposed to bring me back to California. Somehow, my new dad got um, some good lawyers or something where she was going to have to go to Chicago to fight to get me. This is like no money. Um, and so they ended up um, getting to legally adopt me. I'm actually in the process of ordering those papers so I can read them. Um, about that and so that uh, my name was Mary when I was born and as soon as the adoption was finalized the new adoptive parents changed Carrie so um, they changed my first name middle name last name just um, and and so I guess I was approximately two and a half when it was finalized when it was changed between two and a half and three and they um, and so that's my earliest memories um, and little bit of abuse started um, as I I'll go ahead and throw in that um, psychological neglect, physical abuse and sexual abuse are all part of my childhood story. So. Um, uh, so having experienced the neglect and would you call with your birth mother I mean, without really probably having the memories, because most of us don't remember those really early childhood infant experiences. But from what you know, how would you assess that those first, you know, months and years of your life? Would you say it was mostly emotional or because there was a lot of neglect? You had a lot of physical abuse just if you didn't get fed. That's, you know, it's physical. It's, you know, obviously neglect is an emotional um, lack of emotional connection and emotional, um, you know, ties and bonding, but also physically not being, you know, cared for is hugely um, disruptive with babies and young, young infants. It's so important those years. And is that pretty much my understanding that is what the neighbors were seeing? 
I, I think probably um, I'm definitely, you know, I am in some com- contact with with my birth mom, uh, limited contact, but I'm in contact with her. And I definitely, um, uh, man, if I was 22, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm definitely um, not, you know, upset with her or anything, but I, I guess probably I think the bigger thing would be to just be snatched by some basically strangers and taken, you know. Okay. So that was traumatic most likely for you even even if there was some, you know, if 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 you know birth mom, you know, was having her own struggles and problems and money and and our financial situations are a huge uh problem for, you know, women who want to take care of their children but just absolutely physically financially cannot sometimes. It's, you know, we're you have young you know, um, where you're, where you just don't know where to start, you know? So you have some empathy for your birth mom, which I think is a healthy thing to develop as an adult is to understand, you know, what they were going through, at least to give them some grace. You know, there is something to that. It absolutely is one of those stepping stones on the path to your own healing is to be able to, to reflect, you know, as an adult, a grown up you know, on the little girl that was neglected and then looking at the little girl that was trying to raise her. (laughs) You know, I think that you have it when you can develop that kind of empathy, it allows you to let go of, of maybe some of the anger and things like that, you know, to actually be able to maybe forgive, you know, those shortcomings that were just situational because of age, because of financial, you know, um, um, hardship, whatever those things might be. So I think that's very, you know, you're very kind, which is one of the things that I immediately picked up on with you telling your story, you know, as you wrote things to me. And as we have gotten to know each other, I'm like, you know, this is a woman who has been through everything. And yet your your empathy and your kindness is so palpable. And I find that really interesting because you can usually go one of two ways. You either go to the dark side or you go to the other side. <laughs> and you know, I hats off to you. So, so when you're snatched away from your biological birth mom, and basically, um, basically, you were abducted, you were kidnapped, you were you were taken. You know, you were taken to a whole different state, halfway across the you know country. So, at, at the time, looking, I know it's hard to look back because you're only two and a half years old. What have people told you about that time? What? How are you? Um, uh, responding. Do you know if there was, I mean, I had a, a little boy in a kindergarten class, a preschool class, and he was so traumatized because he was, he came from a gang family. I know that now, but the, the, you know, the markings were there and I just didn't, you know, cause I was innocent and, and I didn't know what that was, but now I didn't, now I do. And, and just being left in a classroom, he would hide under the table all the time. He would, you know, have these huge rants. It was never easy for that little guy to be in, in any kind of a setting because he was so, he came from such an unsafe place. He, he just, everything was unsafe. Everything was scary and he had to be in charge. So I just wonder, do you know what some of those things that were going on with you were if you were asking other people or whatever? Because it sounds like you have a lot of either memory or at least you know more of that story in those very young years, which is really unusual. A lot of people don't have any of that. Uh, I have actually, um, 
I have an extraordinary memory, um, except <laughs> there were the sorry, the repressed memories of the sexual abuse. But it's kind of complicated how my mind uh operated for that. Um so it's not that it was completely forgotten in a way, it's kind of hard to describe, but I'll tell you that if you're in elementary school and you've been beaten up by one person and molested by another in 24 hours, uh, your brain has to do something so you can function. And I was fine. I mean, I went to school, I daydreamed a lot. I would daydream for recess. You know, I'd be looking out the window. Wait, I couldn't wait to play soccer. I never got in trouble except for giving away my lunch money once, all of elementary school. Like I school I liked school um I liked learning and it was a it was the safest place I got made fun of a couple times but it was the safest place in my world you know um so so were the people that took you were they raising you throughout this time and then one of them was was physically beating you and the other one was sexually abusing you so husband and wife team right but yeah yes um but and I, for, I still, I call them my mom and dad. They passed away last um, summer. So I, I call them, I refer to them as mom and dad. I, and then first mom, you know. Um, right. I, my, um, my mom, uh, her dad did the same thing. I think she just picked picked somebody like that uh, not on purpose her dad did the same thing um up until she was a late teenager and he hung himself one christmas day um and and it's another thing that you just mentioned earlier about empathy like putting yourself in other people's shoes so that you can see where they came from i mean she had a pretty hardcore um childhood as well and so um uh, the way that my dad was acting was triggering. I, I think my mom definitely had good intentions. She wanted to take care of me. She's always she always loved little babies, and little kids, and also cute, you know. Um, but I I believe that I was uh, I definitely from my memories, uh, except when I was at school, I could sit pretty still. But other than that, I had like a bunch of nervous habits. I rocked uh, and bit my cheek and twirled my hair and. I, I couldn't um, sit still. It was, it was very scary <laughs> um, household. Um, but when I got to school, and I could get a lot of it out too with recess and stuff, and just being a house was was pretty great. Um, so, so you excelled at school because that was safe, and that was a place where you loved to learn, and you could you could get some of your energies and some of the things that were probably, you know, they were things that you were doing because of. You know, when when children are are abused, they often have you know a lot of other little physical things that they do in order to kind of they're like little outlets. It's like a pressure cooker. It's got to let off some steam here and there, you know, because they're holding all of that inside. And when you grow up with that, when it's been from the get go, you're just little. You don't even know anything different. Right. 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 And, um, I, uh, I could, I couldn't play otherwise until, um, some, some neighbors moved in when I was about seven or eight, I didn't get to go outside to play or really even come out of my room unless I was going to school. Um, 
So that, hence the getting it all out um, at school. You know, I, I was an athlete for all the way from athlete from first grade all the way till like seventh grade. And then I kind of, because I started in the music program in fourth grade, I kind of just switched all my energies into music and quit sports like um, just after puberty, really. So pretty close. Um, so it was definitely all the outlets. Um, I had all the outlets at school for sure. Um, but as far as bringing it back, you had asked me what, um, as far as kind of my memory, you were, you mentioned like what was going on um, with my... <laughs> yeah. Not, I, I don't actually remember the exact question. It was just like your memory of it's, it's unusual to have really any memories. I believe in repressed, the repressed memory is that, I mean, obviously it's there, but the brain is doing such a good job for survival for the reasons that we know we're trying to survive um, that, you know, it puts the, you know, places, you know, little compartments <laughs> of the brain are just putting things away so that we can function, like you said, but I just wondered what kind of your earliest memory of the, you know, the abuse from either or both parents and then how that translated into what was, you know, what was um, your experience of what was normal and what, what brought you to the place of going, this isn't, this isn't right, or this isn't normal as you got older. And yet you said it kind of went all the way through for many years. Right. Until about puberty, actually, it actually, I don't think it was all that coincidental that it kind of both things stopped around that time. Um, you know, my mom, my first memories of my mom, some little things, uh, I guess, uh, I believe we were, it was Chicago. I, I can still see the living room. It was either Chicago or Oklahoma because we moved to Oklahoma right after Chicago, mm -hmm. in California when I was five and time to start school. So the first memories I have of her uh, is some things like she would lit a match and then put it out on my finger to, te to teach me not to play with matches and did the same thing with a needle, a sewing needle that was on a different day. It was like, you know, to, to show me, you know, they're dangerous. Um, and the hitting and the beating and grabbing my hair and throwing me against the wall, um, things started in California. So starting when I was five, as soon as we moved into the, the house um, that I was going to be living at for, you know, quite a number of years of my life in Garden Grove, California. So, um, so it definitely started to escalate when we got uh, back to California. Um, and my dad was, my mom was always home. My mom never worked, you know, so my dad would just sneak in at night sometime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, she was asleep. So. Um, did, he, did he talk? Did he talk when he was molesting or raping you did he say things not that i no not that i remember i mean literally the two the bedrooms um at the house in california the bedrooms were across right like the doors are right here so um and right across from each other house, oh yeah i mean you can hear someone yawn from across from anywhere in the house i mean a very small house um 
you know, you can almost hear a pin drop. So there was definitely uh, a very minimal amount of noise. I actually uh, would lay in my bed because of that and in the carpet and stuff. You can't hear footsteps, but I started uh, being able to feel wind, the, the air, the air movement. If somebody walked by, I could feel that on my hair. Like that's how high my senses were being to try to get me to be safe. So I know when someone was coming in mm. because you can't hear any footsteps at all. And so I would feel that little wind. I mean, I still get technically can have very, very heightened senses, but, um, and it was the best my brain could do, at least if I was not caught off guard asleep. Um, so I developed a som- insomnia pretty early on as well. Um, I sleep a lot better now, but I had insomnia for um, quite the majority of my life. Um, and I'm 49, so. Yeah. Um, for a long, long time, even after all of that was over, you you probably had a hard time sleeping. Most people, uh, you know, I would walk around my car. I would look in the back seat. I'd look under the car, just, you know, looking for aliens that I knew were not real. <laughs> or, you know, just there's just a, a residual effect of what, um, how we protect ourselves or what still lingers, you know. So when you, um, w- I mean, is there anything else like with, I'm just, uh, I've just been doing a little bit of research with, you know, young children that are, you know, sexually assaulted by a parent, you know, figure, and he was your dad, and how they develop their relationships with that person, you know, long term, or they cut them off completely, one or the other. Basically, they either come to some kind of um, understanding or some sort of, confrontation was there anything like that that you can tell us about that happened when you got a little bit older at what point I mean you said around a around puberty that both things basically stopped like the physical harm you know the physical uh, abuse from your mother and then the sexual abuse from your father was there ever a confrontation did you just live with it swallow it and take it forward for a number of years or how did you come out on the other side never a confrontation uh, never um with either of them you know um mm-hmm. my um just real quick i i did as far as the um the residual effects i did i rocked myself to sleep till i was 22 wow uh, so i don't i don't do that anymore but i would have to explain when i would get in a new relationship what was what was going to be happening at night um you were going to be rocking (laughs) yeah how do you come through that at you know you're having a new relationship you're telling the person I'm going to be rocking myself to sleep you have other things that you do that are physical um outlets so to speak um tell me a little bit more about that as you as you progressed past puberty what was the relationship like at home was it just a continuation of you just being a great student and being in an in another way escaping or or were you beginning to have like these aha moments and trying to put yourself right with everything Uh, so at at that time when uh my my mom had gone to the the counselor uh and they they had to report her to the authorities, and that's that's the law. Um, 
far as the physical abuse in particular goes. Um, How did they know to report her to the authorities? What were they seeing? The counselor. No, no, no. She she finally went. She went to counseling because of of what she'd done. Like she. Oh, I see. I thought you were talking about a school counselor for you. So you're talking about she actually was seeing a counselor. Like a, like, you know, psychological counselor. Um, therapist. Yeah, therapist. Um, yeah. And they um, re- reported her and that um, some kind of law enforcement came to my school, my junior high in grade, and uh, asked if I wanted to press charges against her, uh, which I said no. And I wasn't. I was very shy then, you know, I didn't really talk until after high school, to be honest. Nobody believes me now, but I have witnesses. I, I'm still friends with some of my high school. Like, really, you never talk. Like, that's hard to believe, um, but it's true. And so I said, no. And they asked one more time, are you sure you don't want to press charges? I said, no. And and that was that. Um, so I went on... Um, I don't know about being a great student. I still love to go to school. Yeah. Music to start out the day, every, all the grades, all the way and even and throughout high school. But um, I, yeah, all the harm had stopped at the house. So I started um, cutting. Um, Interesting. Make the transition there. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about how that transition happens. What happens? It's interesting. Like I, it's like my brain. I, I don't even know what what that's about. Um, but that's how self harm started. I, I was not doing anything self harm until uh, it was peaceful at the house. And um, I don't know. I was at a Christian church camp. <laughs> I was in a hangout with a, a boy there. I, mean, I would go to camp, you know, every summer, and um, we found this broken glass and just started cutting ourselves just um and he did it too on your arms yeah yeah and I I have no idea um and that actually carried on for quite some years um being a cutter I it's been quite a number of years since I did um it kind of morphed into some other things you know I didn't get into partying until after I graduated um because I also had a, a baby. So I got pregnant when I was 17. And after uh, when my dad kicked me out when I was three months pregnant and I found a good good spot, um, Salvation Army, who's Memorial Center in downtown LA, which I looked it up and they just closed down a few years ago. But what an extraordinary um, program for teenagers. Um, I love to hear that. I just, Salvation Army, I just, every time I see a can, if I got something, I want to put it in. I mean, I had my own room. I had the medications, the nursing. I was continuing schooling. I had the counselor. I mean, it was amazing. Um, so through and, your pregnancy, all of this was happening that that cared for you. So yeah, you one, could, of my, one, of my, um, one of my due dates was the day I graduated, but I, I didn't have him until two weeks later. So, but my, my graduation picture, I'm, you know, you can only see my head, but I was um, just about to about to have him, and um, oh. due to the lack of family support, I did give him up for adoption. Um, at you know, at birth, yeah. Um, and then I went into the most even more severe depression um, than I'd ever been in my life. And someone offered me some substances, and I said sure. 
and it cured the depression, you know, um, yeah. it, because it, nothing mattered anymore at that point, you know, and, um, and that's another, you know, that's, well, I think you should talk a little bit about that because I think that it's a very, I often have said when I go into, you know, speak to a, a room, you know, or a group or a, I've been in a lot of different rooms and I've, I've uh, often said before you got here, before you were, you know, um, using, you know, what happened before that? Oh, you were cutting. What happened before that? Oh, and then we get to it when the first break is this sexual abuse or or often physical, mental, psychological abuse. But for sure, it always feels like that's like the big the big elephant in the room that then everything else kind of comes from. So I I just love that you're at the place you are now to be able to talk about all of this and to tell us that story and that path, because now you're in a place where you're going to be one of our, you know, one of our administrators for the online community where there will be, um, you know, everybody's coming at a different point in their healing journey. It could be family members of those that have been, you know, abused in some way, or it, it could be people that are just struggling to try and understand their partner. But it, if you had a chance to talk to someone, to talk to that, let's say it's that child, before, you know, before it goes to the next step, to the cutting and then to the drugs or to the alcohol or to whatever's next, whatever the addiction um, that is to self-medicate, you know, basically. Do you have, you know, words for what you experienced and the years that it took from you to help our listeners? Anything that you could put your finger on? Like, who, how did you get to where you are today? You mean before that, before the... If you could talk to somebody before that had happened to them, before they, all those other things like, you said you didn't self-harm. You weren't cutting yourself when you were being harmed. When you right, were right. being hurt, you weren't hurting yourself. Right. But then something almost like was missing and right. you started doing that. Right. You know, And then from there, it went to, you know, I'm pregnant. I have a wonderful experience, you know, with the Salvation Army and I, I'm cared for. I have everything I need so that I can have a healthy pregnancy, have the baby, you know, after, right after I graduated from high school because of not having the support. It was the right thing for you to, you had chosen, I'm going to give this, this little boy up for adoption. And then that caused another wave of I don't know if that's guilt, if that's just pain, if that separation from, you know, that that little human um, was great enough that that started what sounds like your drug use. It's like losing a part of your body. It's it's even a, a thing um, like you share the mother and baby share some kind of um, I'm not a scientist um, <laughs> like a bond. Yeah, some kind of the something in the bloodstream that it's like for many months or something. I mean, yeah, it's really like a a piece of your body. You're um, attached. That umbilical cord is the attached. You know that is that is real. Yeah, I I get exactly what you're saying. It's hardcore. Um, so that was yeah, that was 
Yeah, I, I forgot to mention that when I started cutting at 14, by 15, I had gone into my first time of uh, 5150 uh, for suicidal ideation. Um, mm-hmm. So that was the first time. Um, and over the course of my life, easily, I've been in for that same reason 25 times. 25 times. Easily, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so I think that, you know, it was actually very helpful. When I was 15, it was like a month long. You got to wear your clothes. It wasn't a cold, you know, um, institutional thing that it is now. We had group therapy and couches. And I actually feel now in hindsight, if if I could have had more of that, I actually, for the first time in my life, let, let somebody hug me and I liked it. Like this, this lady, you know, I, I was so don't touch me. I really think that if that had been able to be longer, or I just got more help like that. I've always struggled with the one-to-one. That's the only thing I haven't done much of, but like the group thing, um, is it was so helpful, but it was just a month. And that was when, that was at age 15, you said. You were 15, you were suicidal. They put you with, like you said, it wasn't really like an, it didn't feel like an institution. It felt like more like a a home. Right. Yeah. Back then it was what, 1980, um, 88 or something. Or, okay. 80, 15. Okay. I don't know. I'm bad at math. Um, but when you back then, you know, it was a lot different. The, the, uh, psychiatric treatment uh, and what they were would do, but you had a month where you actually um, got a hug from a, a person f- for the first time and it felt good and you wanted it. And it was like, oh, if yeah. I could have had more of that. So if we move, go ahead, finish. Oh, I, it was definitely helping all that. The, the couches and it's comfortable and they have different counselors come in and, um, and um, that, I really think if I had had a lot more of that, there definitely could have, something else could have happened. I, I don't, I don't hang out on like, my life could have been like this or my life could have, I don't know, no. but definitely for speaking to somebody else, got to catch it young, you know, start getting the help young, as young as possible. Yeah. Which is beautiful for someone to say to those listeners who either might have a child or they themselves are young enough and going, gosh, I haven't, I haven't told, I haven't had any formal, you know, I haven't had a, a, a comfortable couch and somebody give me a hug and I need that. And, and to be able to admit um, and tell someone sooner than later would be one of my greatest desires is that like you're saying that it could happen sooner because what I was really, I think, getting at and you've really encapsulated what I was trying to say is that it 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 leads from one thing to the next to the next to the next and then that self-harm and how you mitigate pain and and where you end up with many many years of being suicidal 25 different attempts you know you've gone through you know started cutting it's amazing that you survived all of those various things and that you are 
here today to share your story so that others can maybe catch the vision of why they need to seek out the people that will listen, that will believe them, that will actually give them a chance to be on on their side. You know, because I think that loneliness and being alone in in abuse is probably the worst part and that you always feel somewhat alone. Oh, absolutely. And if I could just say, um, there was a couple people that I knew while I was in high school, I'm still friends with now that um, had I not talked about what happened to me, this just four years ago, I happened to mention what happened to me? And then I got a story back of what happened to them. Well, it's just not talked about. Like, who do you talk to? Right. Who, who, know, who, who could even, you, nobody can know, you know, and, and you definitely cannot move forward at all if it's stuck in here. It is not ever going to get better. You're never going to heal it. And then trying to medicate it away is also, you. the only way to get over it is to get go through it. I'm kind of, I want to say, unfortunately, but um, on this side of it, it's not unfortunately. It t- took quite a bit of my life, um, but I, most people don't ever get here. Right. So there's, hope. there's hope. I had no idea. Oh, I just have, yeah, I just have PTSD and I just got to deal with it. Like, uh, there's actually a lot of, a lot of things. There's a, I don't get triggered by the things that I did. After the, I fully forgave last year. Not everybody believes in forgiveness. It's part of my story. For me, the other person had no idea. Um, it's for me. And because I needed that hate to be gone. I cannot live my life. And I spent all the years hating my mom. And then we got to like a neutral point. Um, you know, I forgave her and I, I became neutral. And and then I have this other hate going on. I just some what a ways because if you're feeling that hate um you're damaging yourself it's they do say an AA it's like you're drinking the poison you want them to be drinking right poison like it's <laughs> so it's um it's just imperative to not have it stay stuck in here and really to me it's like here it's my heart my soul it's when I feel love and such as I do now and empathy, it's here. Of course, it's in the mind too, but it's here where it heals. And, um, and then it, it's, it's in the mind as well. So, um, so. That's really beautiful. And it's great um, to give our, our listeners that really um, forthright advice. Like, I think we're so careful to, you know, we don't want to offend anybody or something. But the reality is, if you cannot find a way to let go, because I had, I definitely have had the same experience. And, you know, for some people, for myself, um, I call that forgiveness as well. But you could call it letting go. You could call it moving forward. You can call it, you know, making peace with something. You, If you don't get there at some point, I mean, maybe somebody wants to argue this point um, with me sometime on a podcast, but I feel just like you. How do you move forward? You're drinking the poison if you can't let go. If you're drinking that, 
you know, blame and hate and all of that. It doesn't mean that the person who harmed you should not be held accountable. They should be held accountable. And, you know, in your case, you were young. I I don't even think that they do that anymore. Like a police officer would not be asking a minor do you want to press charges? The state does that. You know, the, the, the they, they want to know, would you cooperate if we were to press charges? Because that's who's going to do that, right? They're right. going to do that. And they build their case basically because they have somebody that says, well, yes, I will. I will tell you what happened and I'll tell them in court and all of those things. You To put that on a, on a young person is ridiculous. Right. Of course you were going to, I mean, not of course, there might be a few really, um, super, uh, what's that, developed and mature, you know, um, 15-year-olds or 14-year-olds or whatever that might say, yes, I will help you with this case because I want to put my mother in jail. But for right. most for most young people, even those young people who are being abused, the person who is also taking care of them is their mother. Right, I'm going to live there. I'm going to press charges. That's I mean, right. Right. I mean, even to get the idea of what would I do if she were in jail? I mean, yes, she she beats me and she burns matches on my fingers and sticks me with needles and teaches me these terrible things in this most, you know, vile way. But on the other hand, there's food or the, whatever it is. You don't put that on a on a young person and I don't think they do that very much anymore. Now if you go to your, you know, police officer at your school or to your school counselor or to someone and say I I want to tell someone what's happening to me at home, they they will take your story and not put the burden on the young person. They will right. take the story and go, "Okay, here's what this person said." Here's what this young person has told us. Now we investigate. Now we start to, you know, turn the wheel to bring justice. But it's a scary thought for a young person to think, what if they did haul her off to jail? Even though I don't want this abuse, even though I don't like, you know, I, I'd rather be at school than at home for sure. I can't be at school all the time. <laughs> I have to have a place where I where I go to sleep, where I have... A refrigerator. I, I mean, do you know what I'm saying? That was really, really interesting when you said that. I'm like, whoa. And I don't know what kind of, I don't remember. I mean, I didn't, I don't know what kind of, um, you know, what agency they were with. Like, I don't, I have no right. idea. I, I don't recall them looking like, I mean, they were all decked out with guns or something, you know, they weren't like regular police. Uh, but I, I don't know. Some sort of an investigator or something from a social services or something like that that came, yeah, yeah. yeah. to your home. Yeah, I find that really interesting, and I do wonder if those are some of the things that we can look at in the online community when we get together with all the, you know, thousands of other survivors who are at different points in their own healing journey, but who are also trying to advocate for change, you know, in different ways between laws or reporting, um, how to make it easier for people to report something or for young people to report something. There might be something there that we could make some positive change in. How do you interview a, a young person that? You showed up at the at the house or at the school for a reason. You showed up there because somebody notices something is wrong. 
something bad is going on. But then how do you talk to that young person in a way that would allow them to move forward so that they can protect the child who can't protect themselves? And certainly with words and with scary language, like, do you want to press charges against the person that is your mother? I just don't think that's the right approach. Do you? No, I I don't know what is. Yeah, that would definitely be a great topic to explore. I I don't know. Yeah, that that wasn't it. (laughs) Yeah, right. That wasn't it. I've been involved in a couple um, domestic violence cases as well in uh, my adult years and um and the state it was the state versus the guy right yeah state of Arizona versus the guy um we had not you know and that's an adult life yeah I'm not too sure why why they would do why they would have gone that method is kind of, is kind of baffling but well and I think it's just inexperience because we know so much more than we did in the 80s about this kind of familial abuse that most abuse is happening to children by someone they know, someone they love, someone that's in their home, in their neighborhood, their sports team. I mean, it's like, that's what it is. That's, it's not a scary stranger. You know, I mean, you can, you can, you know, kind of shut your eyes to it because I think that's what is comfortable for most people. They don't want to believe that. They don't want to believe that it could be somebody in their congregation or in their school or their, 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 extended family, but that's almost always who it is. It's not a stranger. And so people would much rather, you know, kind of throw their time and energy and money into, you know, the stranger kind of thing, because that's a little more palatable. It's it's like, oh, let's go rescue, you know, uh, kids from sex trafficking. Let's do these other things. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That's horrible too. But the number of children and young people who are being basically sex trafficked in their own home right. and in their own neighborhood and in their own congregation and in their own sports teams and is hugely, massively more numbers than this horrible problem over here. So right. we got to start, in my opinion, right at the grassroots level Right, and they also, they they push this um, this idea that you know the perpetrator will have a bunch of victims. That's only true of the people that go to prison, right? It's the guys, or I mean, there are women too, but the perpetrators that have like gotten to like a hundred children. Those are not the ordinary. Everybody I know and have known that's had a sexual thing has been a family member of some sort or a friend of the family every time. And uh, that's the the most likely. So, so there's one in four girls, one in six boys, but there's not one out of four pe- people being prosecuted. I mean, it's like, it's like um, this only t- t- statistic I read is just like a 3% chance of getting caught. So it's this, there's gotta be a way to, um, to tell, to report, to do this in a way that gets believed, first of all, and that then there's a, a an immediate method that comes in to protect the child. Right. And I, I do think um, that I think part of 
you know, everybody turning a blind eye is the statistic. You know, I started studying it um, when I went no contact with my dad. So that was uh, 2017. Um, that was part of my healing process is to stop stop talking to someone who who, who doesn't have their best interest in mind. Just and, and just think about that. 2017. How old were you when you finally said no contact with my dad, my my abuser? Forty something. <laughs> Forty something years old. That's common too. That's what is so astounding. People listening often go, "Wait, what?" And it's like, "Well, yeah." You, you, you know, the average woman doesn't talk about you know a rape or a sexual assault of any kind, whether it was in childhood, young adulthood, in their in their you know, college years or at any of the, at any point, it, it almost always takes at least seven years before they talk about it, before they tell for right. a man, if they ever tell, right. it's like 21 years right? that they right. keep that lethal secret. Yeah. People tend to seem to be in their forties, fifties, even, um, you know, famous people that have come forward. Yeah. A lot of them because as we know the statistic, it's not like, why are there so many famous people? No, it's like all people. It's a lot of people. All it's people. Yes. Not particular, why is there so many? It's because there's so many, period. Exactly. <laughs> so, and those are just the ones that you happen to hear about because they are famous people. Right. I mean, all of the non-famous people, which is most of us. Right. <laughs> Our stories, you know, I'm I'm really, really lucky that my story got told, but it's because I wouldn't shut up. It's because right. I've been talking about my story for 30 something years. Right. And it's not like I've made, you know, a million dollars telling my story or anything. It just truly was like, I feel like if I can tell this story, maybe other people will tell theirs. Because like you said, and when you put your hand over your heart, over your chest, and you said, you can't keep it in here because you can't heal that way. That's why we're here. Right. That's why we're telling one story at a time, one person at a time, getting it out and letting other people know it's okay for you to tell your story. And whether you come to a group meeting or you come to our online community and whether you write it down and you post it on a wall or you you do it anonymously or you do it publicly like what you're doing today, there is something about that that is so helpful to the person, for the person. I know it helped me all those many times. And it also helps other people because it emboldens them. It gives them the realization that I'm not alone. You know, that's it's hard to be alone in it because almost all sexual abuse of children happens in the dark alone. Right. You're right. alone in it, you know, right. and you're scared to death. Right. And you don't make a peep. Right. You you're, you were so quiet, you know, right. whether he had to put his hand over your mouth or not. I've had other stories that they said, well, he would just put his hand over my mouth and then pinch me really hard, but I couldn't make a sound, you know? And I I think about that, those two doors that are facing each other in the hallway. Close. The hallway was just so, it's a little house. <laughs> yeah. Little house. And yeah. there he is in his yeah. little, what, six, seven-year-old, daughter's room, five-year-old, whatever. Oh, I just, I'm so sorry that happened to you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I cannot adequately explain to you guys how vitally important therapy has been for me throughout my life. 
At times, it has been what keeps the 10% of my life, which is filled with challenges and trauma, from festering and becoming 20% or 30% or 50% and so on. Therapy has literally saved my life. It commits you to your own mental health, and it has a physical impact on you as well. So when your mental health is good, your bodily health improves. I'm telling you that at BetterHelp, you have an opportunity to do the easiest pathway to a therapist. You can chat with them. You can have a video session. You can text your therapist. It's immediate. You don't have to drive anywhere, and they will match you with a licensed professional. And if that doesn't work out, it doesn't feel like a fit to you, you can change it anytime for no additional charge. It's more affordable than traditional therapy, and it's easier than traditional therapy. When you feel better mentally because you've been seeing a therapist like I have throughout my life, you'll know why you have committed that time that money, that space. So hopefully you'll go to BetterHelp, use our link, betterhelp.com forward slash my name, J-A-N, and that will help out our show. It will help you. Plus, if you sign up from our link, you get 10% off your first month. I'm telling you, it's so much more affordable than traditional therapy. And it's also so much more immediate because you can do it from the palm of your hand. I know that for a fact. I've used them myself. It's interesting, too, that another statistic that is truth, because you're living proof of it, is that the the greatest predictor that you will be sexually assaulted is that you have already been sexually assaulted. Absolutely. So the number of people that are sexually assaulted multiple times throughout their life are generally people and children who were assaulted when they were young. Absolutely. And so that happened to you, you said a couple of times in different relationships. Can you talk yeah, a little bit about that? Would you mind? Speaking of that, uh, what I was when I was 14, walking home from school, a guy followed me, you know, because I stared at the ground and my shoulders are and I'm like hunched forward and you're staring at the ground and you're you look like a target. Slow, you know. Um, I know now that that's that's what them perpetrators are looking for. Uh, he followed me home. Uh, he was old, and I'm I'm just gonna guess because I don't know when I when you're 14, you know, but I would say he was like 30 or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, seemed old. Yeah, definitely older. Um, and he followed me all the way home to my yard. It was like the one weird day where um, the door was locked. Nobody was home. Almost always, someone was home. My mom was in a bowling league. She she went occasionally. So I sat on the grass. He sat on the grass. He tried to kiss me. He had to put his arm around me while I was going. He had uh, tried to kiss me. I cannot believe that I instinctively turned my because I could never say no. I can't couldn't say no, right? I, I definitely. Oh yeah. But I turned my head, and that was enough for him to realize that he should probably get, go. Of course, I didn't scream or run anywhere. I'm already trained to just take whatever um, comes my way. Uh, right, you just swallow it. You just you just take it. That's what that's what your whole life was set up for you to do. Right, the fawn freeze, the different uh, ways you can react. Definitely. Right. Um, and he already knew that we targeted me anyway. You know, um, but he did end up going away and I'm walking over to the to the neighbors um, or whatever. So, and, um, so you just do, you just get into those kind of situations. Um, as far as the domestic violence stuff was, 
uh, in my older, um, I mean, I had relationships with, uh, I had boyfriends and girlfriends um, over the course of time from, you know, the 20s and 30s. And and there was some violence in some of those, you know, I thought like, oh, maybe if I date girls, it'll be safer. But well, some of them could be violent too. And I, um, you know, I'm going to be attracting uh, violent people whatever yeah what yeah that's that's the the pattern I guess it's pretty um normal you know you track you know something to, similar to what's yeah. have you have you had any good advice on how you break that particular pattern I know a lot of people struggle with that you know I've I I hear that a lot um from people like how do you how do you make sure you don't attract the wrong people? And then how, when you do, when you are, you know, you want to have a relationship, why is it that it always seems like that's who I'm attracted to? You know, I'm attracted to that, not knowing that they're going to be violent or that they're going to be harmful or whatever. But do you have any good advice? I'm like, I don't know how that, I don't know how that works, but it's like a sixth sense or something that just is like, um, my, the only thing that I figured out is to be single. So unfortunately I don't have a lot of advice on that. Even, um, even since healing and stuff, you know, and I've liked a couple people and I just realized like, Oh my God, I can't, I've never, it's like this permanent picker is broken and and that's a great I hope somebody else I need somebody else with some good advice on that because well maybe in our online community we'll have one of our one of our groups will be you know my picker's broken please help (laughs) how do we how do we reprogram recreate redesign the thing that picks you know the the people that we have relationships with because I'd like to have one at some uh, you know two but I feel, you know, I I didn't I didn't suffer from domestic violence per se, but I definitely have my own issues that carried with me throughout my, you know, my tweens and teens and adult young adult life that um I just it was hard. It was hard relationships were hard for me to to see to to wait for, to have enough time to suss out how some people seem to be able to have this really logical kind of, you know, here's the pros and cons or whatever. And I was just like all with my feelings and didn't know how to see beyond that. You know, it was always, always has been hard for me. And yet I, I can see so many things that I learned and that I'm grateful for actually in the experiences that I've had in the relationships that I've had. So it's interesting. I mean, I don't have all bad stories there and I'm sure you don't either. I'm sure you've had some, some good ones along the way, but the fact of the matter is I too am sitting here single, you know, and going, huh, that would be, I guess my default as well. (laughs) You know, That's why I I thought maybe one day I'd get married and that's how I could change my last name. And, um, Shortly after I went no contact with my dad, 2017, I, I, I decided, well, I'm just going to change it myself. And so I thought about it for a year. I went to court in Eugene, Oregon, and I said, this is what I want my name to be. And this is why. And they waived the fee. They thought it was a pretty good reason. Um, 
I want to hear the reason because I love your name, Carrie Grant. Oh my gosh. And then I took back my original middle name because the the adoptive parents, they they had changed my name, right? To Carrie Lynn. My original name was Mary Elizabeth. And I, um, you know, I like the name Carrie and it was too, it's too late to change your first name, you know? So, um, so I took that name back, Elizabeth, that I was born with. So Carrie, Elizabeth, and then Grant, uh, a number of reasons. I don't, there's one secret little reason, um, that a lot of people guess, Carrie Grant. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, actor. Yes. And love him. When I was a kid and there was all these other things named Carrie, I thought, oh, good. It's not just just a, only a little dumb girl named Carrie. So there was a lotion. There was Carrie Grant. There was um, there was another um, there was another. Oh, uh, Carrie um, maple syrup. Oh, anyway, all those things. I'm like, OK, other kinds of Carrie. OK, good. And uh, and that's part of the influence. Um, and also sort of the innuendo of the, um, because I have had boyfriends and girlfriends and, uh, and yeah, so that just helps me be, a, um, embody everything that, um, I am not sure how to say it, but, um, well, no, that you can be, that it embodies every part of you, every piece of you. Right. Right. Because that, right. that's what we what, what we know today about Cary Grant. Right. And right. for you to be able to do that with your name and therefore feel like, okay, I'm a fully formed human being. And right. for, I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting and I think it's really important for our listeners to hear, you know, your story, to know, okay, like you you framed it when you said that. You said, you know, well, maybe if I date girls or women they won't be violent but I don't know that that would have been your entire reason you probably just your bi you know your bi you you have attraction and for and that is also a really important thing for people to understand is that you know what It, it isn't exclusive to one sex or the other there is there are problems within you know, the gamut women, you know, can also be um, violent. They can also be incredibly emotionally and physically abusive. Hello, your mother. You know, it, it, it is something that has gotten to a point for me in listening to thousands of stories, reading them and listening to others that I realize where in the chain, am I going to break the cycle? Because I did not have abusive parents. I feel so lucky in that respect. And yet I know that the majority of children who are abused sexually, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physio, physio, psychologically, (laughs) you know, all of it, you know, it's almost always somebody inside the walls of their home, whether it's a sibling or uh, maybe it's a, you know, an extended family member that's there all the time, but so much is there. And for some reason, that kind of abuse is the least talked about. It's the least dealt with, like you said, 3% that ever get caught. 
And then out of the 3% that get caught, how many of those actually ever have justice served? How many of them ever go to jail? Right. So cute. Nobody that I've known, and I've known a lot, I know and have known a lot of people. I was in a a rehab in Long Beach, California at one point. And I literally asked because it was like a lot of people had these stories. And I asked everybody, literally everybody there raised their hand. They had been molested as a child. Every single person sitting at that rehab. Yep. Hey, no, nobody's gone to jail. Nobody. None of their, none of their perpetrators had gone to jail. No. Just, it's just mind boggling to, I I feel they're just delusional. I feel like they they must, I, I really would, couldn't picture what's going on in their mind, but it seems like they must think it's no big deal because the, the after effects don't really show up. In, and in nobody's bruised until later, and they're like, "Oh, they're just a drug addict now, or they're just crazy and stuff." Well, and that's that. Is, I'm so glad you said that because that, to me, is the is the reason why you got to get at the core of all these other things that happen. I think that that that's what happens. People are trying to to solve a problem in all the wrong ways or something. And they don't even know that that's the reason. And yet there you are sitting in in that rehab, you know, with other, a whole huge group of women and men that that are all addicts. And what is the common denominator? They all were abused. Right. Absolutely. Why, why, Why are we not throwing all of our resources into prevention for sure. But the only way to prevent it is to help the people, the hundred million people in this country that are walking around who are mommies and daddies and adults and, and they've been abused. That's how many there are. Right. You know, it's like a third of this country, the third of all the people that are, you've got to get at the core of helping those folks get on to, maybe they're on a healing path, but how do you really deal with trauma? How do we really get to a place where we can become super advocates, where we can become the super aware and we will be the ones that will prevent it. We will we will see it and know it and call it out by name. Right. Uh. And then we, that's to me how it happens. You You have to help those that have been harmed get through that and and it's a lifelong journey i i get it i mean it's not like it's oh gosh i went to this one retreat and now i'm healed right. that may not be what i'm saying i'm saying that if you're on the path you come into a place of empowerment you come into a place where you have a voice you come to a place where you are able to go okay on my worst day i have somebody that is going to that's there for me that i can call or that i can go and serve and help somebody else that's the aa magic in my opinion that you know part of your recovery part of your healing is that you have to help others and then when you need help your cry for help there's someone there to help you so that's what i'm trying to kind of bring to the forefront of this problem is that we're people go oh you'll never solve it there's just so many blah 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 and i'm like the uh-huh. way you solve it 
is that you, first of all, help those that were harmed who are adults, and then they become the super aware, super advocates. And that prevention happens because of what they know, because they know, and they've, they've gone through the healing path. They understand trauma. They know what it looks like. And so that's how you kind of, it's, it's that chain that chain reaction for the future, for the generations in the future. And it's that chain reaction for the people that have already been harmed in the past because you'll notice it, you'll see it, and you'll do something about it right. sooner. Like we talked about earlier, we're going to do it sooner. We're going to help the 15-year-old that we know the signs are there, know what to do, and we're going to hold their hand. We're not going to expect them to do it. Right. We're going to help them. So that's really, I mean, your story just just encompasses every aspect that I could ever hope to. Um, I mean, I would never, you know, wish what happened to you on my worst enemy. Of course, it's just horrific. And I admire you. As we kind of wrap up the podcast, is there any any one or two things, maybe a, a book you're reading or something that you are doing actively on a daily or a weekly basis that you feel like has made a big difference in your healing journey? Anything you could share with us? Um, yeah, which reminds me, I need to read your book. Uh, <laughs> maybe Sitting right there, that yellow book back there. Yeah. Um, um, what I do, um, you know, I just, I just really... Right now on the internet, I just continue to relate to people, um, you know, with different posts and stuff um, through Instagram or, you know, I um, there's really not a lot. Um, there was a heck of a lot during the heal all the years, you know, I was in a bunch of, I was doing so many things, studying and, um, and doing so many, every single thing I could. Because unfortunately, um, or for lack of a better term, it's really got to be at the forefront of your, you have to deal with it to get through it. And so it's like, oh, I can't just sit here and, you know, so I did as many, put my energy as many avenues with um, talking to people, studying, researching the statistics and um, trying to understand why this is happening at all. What, what is with our species? There is no other species that this is happening. There's something uh, wrong. I don't mean with our species particularly, but with something of the way the structure of society. Yeah, something is up that that we abuse our our own, that we abuse our littles. It, it yeah. there is something really truly, you know, oh. so startling about it when you really sit down and you go, okay, if I'm in a room with ten people you know, two and a half of these women in this room and one and a half of these boys in this room have been abused. And you really go, oh my gosh, that's four out of 10 people in this room. Right. That is a whole load of people. That is a huge amount of people. And and so if you're in a room with a hundred kids that are in a in a school you know, like in an assembly or something, and you look out and you see a hundred kids, you know, 40 of them are right. experiencing abuse. How is that possible? How does this human species, like you're saying, do this to their young? I don't get it either, but it's real. And so 
I love the idea that you said you studied a lot because you wanted to know the statistics and you wanted to put kind of, I think when you put names and stuff to what happened to you, that actually helps you kind of study it from like, um, like you're a medical professional or, a, or something. It really does change it when you really start to put it at the forefront of like, I have to deal with this. And like yeah. you said, you got to go through it. Yeah, definitely. I, I did want to mention real quick that yeah. you had mentioned earlier about, um, you know, how everybody turns a blind eye and stuff. And I think that one of the, possibly one of the main reasons is because a person would have to then admit that they don't have per- perfect judgment of other people. That would mean, oh, the uncle did it. No, no, he he's not like that. You would have to admit that your judgment is nobody's judgment of people is perfect, but we we do certainly do think it is, you know, and I'm I'm no exception. Um but that's I think that's part of it is that Oh, I like that. I love that. And also one other thing about that um is that if if the person it's not attracted to you. They're not going to be creepy around you. So for someone or a relative or something to be like, he's not like that. It's like, well, then he, he's not attracted to you. That's why he's not like that. That's why you haven't seen any evidence of that. Mm. Um, time again, with anything you hear about a rape case and a mom, like, oh, he wouldn't do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, that's actually the automatic normal reaction. And that is helping to perpetuate keeping a blind eye. Yeah. And you know what? That's tied into ego, isn't it? It really truly is an ego thing. So there's something about pride and ego that I would know, I would see, and the the people can't admit that, oh my gosh, the perpetrators are so smart and they, they look so nice and they treat, you know, all these other kids love them because they weren't the target or whatever. Obviously, I know better. I know that can't be true. That guy wouldn't do that. You know, that woman, that was, you know, teacher of the year. That's impossible. And we would have to admit that we do not have the best judgment um, of people and that we don't have all of the answers. And I think that is an ego issue. That is really interesting. And on the flip side of that is nobody wants to be worried all the time, right? Right. Sure. Bad to worry about if your child's getting less or not. Right. But uh, yet, I, I, if you I think about it... Everyone, but why not? I yeah. Mean, well, either open your eyes to it or you're going to close them. And you close them and then it's going to happen. And right. Now you, and so I, I think that whole thing, and, and there's a cognitive dissonance involved. Uh, I don't know if you know. Anyway, a, I yeah. study a lot of psychology. Um, of, and so the mind just goes, wait, nah, he wouldn't do that. It's the easy way out for you, for your mind. However, in the meantime, a child is life is getting ruined day at a time. Yeah, definitely, unless they get help. And you know, um, so I am very glad to have seen your series to respark. I mean, I jumped on my own bandwagon. Like I am the same. I want to figure out. Like there's got to be something, if nothing else, and at least to help survivors. But like. Is there something that can be done? Why not try? Yes, why not try? How ridiculous. What did you say? I missed the ridiculous. What did you say? Statistics? One in four, one in six, it's ridiculous. 
there's got to be something that can be done. Exactly. It is ridiculous. It's like, really? We're going to just be like, oh, there's nothing we can do? No, there is so much we can do. We can absolutely do so much. And even just telling our stories, that in and of itself can help thousands. You know, I know your heart is in the same place as mine. We want to help hundreds of thousands. We really want to see that 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 one person who shares a story, that one person who becomes hyper-aware, that one person who will stand up for a 12-year-old when the 12-year-old can't stand up for themselves, that one person can change hundreds of lives. Right. I mean, it can, it can literally save hundreds of children from having to go through or to go through this abuse that turns into self-harm for years and years and years and years. If you would help a person right now on their healing path. You would join our community, give your two cents worth, tell your story, help us start advocacy groups so that we can change the way that these these, these situations are dealt with. They're not dealt with, basically, is right. what we've really come to, is everybody in that rehab room had been abused. None yep. of their perpetrators were incarcerated. Right. They were the ones that we're now suffering with this horrible addiction, this horrible sense of I'm a failure, something's wrong with me, I'm the screw up, instead of it going back to what happened. Right. That actually sent that trajectory for their life down that path. Dominoes of of all the things that, um, yeah, all the self-harm. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we don't then take responsibility for our actions for what happens, but that's part of it. A lot of times you don't even realize that the first things that set you up for failure were not your fault. You have to talk about those things first and you have to acknowledge them. And then we even talked about forgiving. We talked about letting go so that we could move forward and how important that was, which doesn't mean the perpetrator gets a free pass. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about ourselves becoming free because we don't hate. We just get into action. We get into action. We're going to take action. Right, right. And the forgiveness also for anybody who... um, who's had the path I have, I've had of the self, the various types of self-harm is you do have to forgive yourself as well. Absolutely. Uh, same that comes with the things that um, go on out in that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I've definitely, I have had some times where I went through some situations where I'm like, I'm just harming myself. What am I doing? Right. But I, but I had to take, you know, I had to take responsibility. I had to do what I could. And then I had to forgive myself. And right. go, well, I guess I'm pushing back on something that robbed me of having those normal teenage years, you know? Right. And so I think when we start to understand that there's a circle here, it's like this record that has the scratch. I talk about it all the time. We have this perfect record. We're born, we're perfect, you know, got this beautiful music playing. And then somebody puts this huge scratch on our record. Scratch right. doesn't go away. The scratch is there for your life. Right. But what does what does happen is that you can choose and get on a path to not harm yourself, but you need some people to help and assist you along the way. Absolutely. If you're so despondent that you can't get on that path, you got to have some help. 
So whether it's joining our online community, whether it's joining a good uh, another group out there, it's it's going to an AA meeting or an NA meeting or some other kind of meeting. It's something you gotta you gotta have enough um, care for yourself that you even think you're worthy to be helped. You know, to be to be happy. A lot right. of people just don't think they even deserve that, and that comes from abuse. Oh, definitely. Because little kids are running everywhere, you know, they're leaping and jumping and running from place to place. They're, I, you know, anyway, I say these same things over and over again. <laughs> I hope my listeners don't get tired of it, but it's true. Yeah. So if if you had been allowed to develop normally and naturally, yeah, you would have gone through junior high school years and those are hard no matter what, you know, but it would not be the same. I don't think the struggles would be the same as what happens if you have been through physical, mental, emotional, or sexual abuse. I think that really does put a scratch in your record that has to be dealt with. And like you said, Carrie, the only way to do it is to go through. You can't skip. The the record won't just get back on track unless you actually pick up the needle, move it past the scratch, and then keep going. And then it's going to get stuck again and you pick it up and you move it past the scratch and you keep going. And you got to get really good at doing that. Yeah. I admire you for having come as far as you have. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I really appreciate just the insights that you bring and the the wealth of experience that you've had and the place that you're at now in your life. And we're very excited to have you as one of our as one of our moderators, administrators, and and help um, many other um, survivors and their orbits, you know, find healing and find health and find happiness. Um, Looking that- forward to survivors. <laughs> what what was that? Thrivivors community. <laughs> yes. Yes, Thrivivors community. Here we come. And um, I know we keep promising we're going to open the community. There's just been a lot more things to um, to finalize in order to open it and make sure that it's a safe space and that we have all of our, our I's dotted and our T's crossed because we really do want it to be one of those um, lifelong places that you will be. Um, kind of like going to a meeting. You know, you kind of say, I'm going to that meeting. And I'm going to do it, you know, probably forever in order to stay in this space of, of I'm worth it. I, I can help, I can heal, and I can serve somebody else on this path. And I can help myself stay in a place where I'm not, I'm not causing myself harm. So that's what we want. We want happy people. Um, we know that's a big uh, leap for some people when they're really, really sad or distressed and they're going through the worst of it. Um, we just love you. We want you to know that. And so thank you for listening. Thank you, Carrie. Carrie Grant for being on our show. Any parting words? What's what's the rest of your evening look like? Me? Yeah. Time for bed. Time for bed. Good. Um, Take care of yourself. Get some good sleep now that you now that you don't have insomnia every night. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely. I mean, sleep there's a little struggle with it, but um, it's definitely not. I do not claim um, insomnia for sure. Like I, you know, um, uh, which is nice. That's Uh, good. Being nice to yourself is one of the most important things that we have to do. We have to take care of our of our own little inner inner little person. And that is sometimes where the adult person comes in and goes, you know what? I just need to be a little nicer 
to that little person that went through a whole lot. Yeah, definitely. You no, know? I think I'm more than one little person, as I have mentioned. Um, I have mentioned not on here, but um, definitely dissociative uh, identity disorder, which I I forgot to mention. At 14, when my mom went to that um, therapist, yeah, uh, she was also diagnosed at that moment uh, with multiple personality disorder. So. Your mother had multiple personality disorder. Oh my goodness. So did they, do, do you know, because you have this? Not, not, not my birth mom. The, the no, mom. no, you're the mom that raised you. That's why I'm going to ask this question. So do you think that you developed this because, I mean, it wasn't, you know, genetic because this was the woman that adopted you? Right. Well, you know, with all the abuse plus, I mean, there's no way that I, I couldn't have it anyway, but um, I. Um, can you explain it just a little bit more? We're just going to take another couple minutes because I think it's fascinating. And, and one of the things that I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about, so I didn't bring it up, but yeah. now that you've brought it up, can you, can you talk about it just for our listeners to understand? Well, it's normal to me, but I mean, she had a lot of different wigs and, um, a lot of color, different colored bandanas. And, you know, I don't remember like what they meant, you know, I, I don't know, but it, she definitely changed changed it up a lot, and um, and then sometimes she she would, uh, you know, be a kind of like a baby and and sucking her thumb, and then um, just a number a number of um, I don't know how many personalities um, to be honest, um, and that got a lot better too after the abuse space put her on medication, um, and ultimately. You know, that last few years um, that I had talked to her, she she was pretty much just medicated. So she was just one, you know, person. Terrible person. I would know who, what, you know, she just pretty much steady. Yeah, she was on a lot of her pain issues and whatnot. Um, she was, besides some antipsychotics, she was also on some OB, opioid um, and benzodiazepine she was on a lot of stuff um but she wasn't didn't seem loaded barely ever i mean she really just she needed really all that medication i guess um she needed the medications in order to just kind of be in a normal one personality persona and so as a young as a young you know as a as a young child and certainly as a gosh a tween i can't imagine not knowing which personality was going to be there. Not that you were like, you hadn't diagnosed her or anything like that. You're just a kid. You're just trying to maneuver your way through life and not get, you know, harmed that day, right? I don't want to get, you know, burned or pricked or or beaten or whatever. So you're just trying to maneuver. But But looking back, could you see the different personalities that she manifested do you have a, a do you have your own ideas of where that came from? I mean, I don't other than her. I mean, of course, her, her childhood. You know, as far as her her dad being uh, the perpetrator for all those years, like to right. where she up with him, that was the the level. And it, and he hung himself. And any time that she mentioned him over the years, you know, she mentioned him very fondly. I mean, she she loved loved him, and that that. But um, I'm sure that that uh, certainly influenced her. (laughs) 
to have those splits. And I don't really know um, all of her childhood beyond what he did. I'm not really sure if there was um, other abuse. It wasn't mentioned. Um, She never mentioned it. Um, You know, any physical uh, abuse. Um, I think maybe he was violent, but I don't think that she actually experienced physical abuse. But like I said, I, I don't know exactly for sure. All you know is that for sure she experienced sexual abuse from her father for many, many, many years and then had multiple personality disorder. Yes. As you were able to finally, as an adult, probably is when you were able to say those words and to see it and go, oh my gosh, that, again, it doesn't excuse I mean, we all have to take responsibility for our actions if we've harmed another person. And so, and yet we can see, you know, as adults that, okay, she was dealing with something that came from her background, which is, again, this is the chain that we're trying to, the pattern right. or the, you know, the outcome, we want to change the outcomes for right. your generation. Just get passed on and then you're, you're attracting the same kind of, perpetrators or whatever, you know, or um, you're just attracting those, those things and these, these cycles just, well, the only way I've broken it is because I'm single and I'm remarried. And also, um, you know, I mean, I certainly, if I had a kid now, which isn't really possible, but certainly that, that wouldn't get passed on. But who knows, had I had a situation where I could keep that baby, even though I loved it so much, who knows? I always wondered. I might have ended up being like my mom. Maybe he would have been really annoying starting at age two. And I got to tell you, I, I I did not like children for quite a number of years because they would be laughing and having fun. And I just, um, and that changed several years ago before even the heal, the full healing and forget it. That just changed um, several years ago. I love children, but I was like, I guess jealous of them. And it after just hurt me. I just couldn't stand it to hear it because I didn't have that. I told you I went to resets and all that, but I wasn't a smiley, happy kid. I I do that now when I play with the dog. Now I'm free to do that. I was not free. I wasn't a smiley. I would like pick up worms to bring to school to scare the girls. Like I was really kind of, you know, a bratty little tomboy. I was having fun with sports, but I wasn't like, we a puddle, I'm going to jump in it. I, I did not have those. Right. You um, didn't have that childhood. No, you didn't have those things that that you should have had. <laughs> you did not have them. So why wouldn't you be jealous if some other kids were having that and were free to to laugh and to run and to jump in mud puddles and to and to be free in that way. You didn't have any of that freedom. I can totally understand that. I think that's probably very similar to most a lot of people yeah. that have experienced abuse. It's very difficult to even be around people that are experiencing happiness and joy. And you're just almost like, I can't even stand this. I just need everybody to be as as miserable and unhappy and sad as I am. I totally think that that is one of the main things that we deal with is to come to a place where we can be like, I've got to be free to be happy and healthy or I can't let anybody else around me be health, happy and healthy. It's really amazing. Oh, how I that, was like, I mean, through high school and all that, I was not, uh, yeah, there was no, my smile lines, you know, they've come a lot later. It's been a okay. lot of laughter and smiling, you know, and. Uh, 
I don't know when it started, but it's certainly um, from elementary school, high school, uh, even in my 20s, I wasn't like going having no belly laughs. Yeah. Know? I mean, I really, um, I was furious. <laughs> I was fun because I was seeing, I was driving, I was like seeing and stuff, and I was in bands. Yeah. Curious. Myself, which is fun. But other than that, I wasn't a fun person. <laughs> Well, and it's hard to, if you don't learn how to be fun and how to be free, because there's no freedom in abuse, you are completely trapped. Right. And it is hard to, I mean, you know, I I have trained myself to have a, a, a really good sense of humor. And I've trained myself to not be so serious about myself. But it took something. It wasn't like it was free. I had to work at that oh, because yeah. I was so you know, a type personality, like accomplishment machine. That was Jan Broberg, you know, accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. I have to do this, this, this. I have to be straight A student. I mean, I just, I could not, you know, I couldn't live without the checklist because the checklist allowed me to feel good about myself. Like, oh, I checked everything off my list. Now I can feel good about myself. I didn't know how to just feel good. I didn't know how, I, I didn't have the, there were lots of freedom things that, that I realized in my, probably my later twenties and thirties, like, whoa, I gotta, I gotta, I've got to learn how to have joy, how to be happy just by being, you know, like I don't have to be, you know, the star of the show or the prettiest person in the room or date the most handsome guy to be happy or to be, have joy. That doesn't, none of that even, or money, uh, none of that, none of that was really what the core of joy was. The core of joy was just liking myself (laughs) and actually figuring out how to do that. And uh, I, I really understand that. I think that's really interesting that you would mention that. And when you said you have, what was the name of what you have? This is, what do you call it? They changed the term. I haven't been officially diagnosed. Um, it's very, uh, it's very difficult for them to diagnose. I guess on average, it takes like five years. And um, disassociative identity disorder is what they this disassociative identity disorder. Can you can you educate us a little bit? Even if you're self-diagnosed, I I just like to know what the term means. I have my own idea of what I think it means. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same principle as multiple personality. It's just that um, I don't know why they changed the name, to be honest. Um, um, But that's just like I said, um, with the things happening to me in elementary school and how I could just go be normal. If you could try to imagine an adult and those things happen to them on a day and they're just going to go be able to act normal at work. Like that's um, that's the magic of. Disassociative. I mean, I'm grateful for that. Um, that caused me a lot of problems in my life later on, right? That was kind of um, before I was aware of what your brain was doing to protect you. Right. Uh, yes. Uh, and so, um, uh, you could be a different personality and person at school. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you just, you, yeah, you would think like, okay, someone got beat and, you know, raped or whatever in a 20, in 24 hours ago, and they're just going to just hang out and function normally like that wouldn't, you wouldn't expect a person 
be able to do that. That's some hardcore stuff. Um, and so that's, that, like I said, it is a great, um, it's a great function at the, for the, those purposes. Right. Uh, so I, I didn't notice and I didn't have any real awareness until um, the repressed memory started. Surfacing. And two weeks later, I went into the mental hospital. Um, I wasn't suicidal, but I was staying in my car on purpose. I like, I was staying in my car for two weeks and I, one of my personalities got me in there. Right. So I didn't, I was just like, I just wanted a little indoor, be indoors, you know, have a shower and stuff. That's what I thought. As soon as I, as soon as I got in there and said I was suicidal about 20 minutes later, I actually was suicidal. Wow. That's how strange it is. I, I didn't feel suicidal at all. I thought like it was one of part of my brain doing me a favor to get me in there you know before and, before the other part took over which was the personality that was suicidal me and getting in to the the hot and so while I was in there every day I presented myself differently to the psychiatrist and I know after about a week I was in there 11 days after about a week I noticed I called a friend that I've had for some time and I said oh my god I think I have just I think I have multiple personality disorder or whatever She's like, whoa, what a breakthrough. She's done me a long time. And um, because it's like everybody was trying to like, I was really wanted out of there also after a few days. So every, and it's not acting. And so that's kind of the controversy is like, oh, they're just acting, which is, um, just seems ridiculous to me. I only have my own experience. Like, I don't, I don't know how even that makes sense or what the use of it would be for. But I can't, I, I don't know. Maybe somebody does fake it. I, I don't know. Um, but No, I think that this is, generally speaking, it, it, like you basically said, even as an adult, the the part of you or the personality of you that was trying to take care of you, get you out of the car where you've been living for two weeks, get a shower, you know, get you into a safe place because then the other personality was going to present itself and say, I'm suicidal. I right. think that that makes total sense. Like you have these various, I mean, I always describe just the way that we cope with trauma as compartments. You have a compartment that you put certain things in and then you can shut the compartment door, lock it away and really try hard not to deal with it. And that is a a legitimate uh, coping mechanism that it, everybody has those. Right. I, I just remembered, um, speaking of on this topic is that I just read and I'm so glad finally there was a, um, an organization called the false memory syndrome. I false. It finally, it was started by a man who was accused by his daughter of molesting her. He started, him and his wife started the False Memory Foundation, which has been very damaging over the years to victims. Um, that was dismantled, shut down uh, like two years ago. It's not a thing. It's not because it's already not a thing. Um, that was never a medical term, false memory syndrome. But like, it just like. It had a life. Very damaging. It is very normal for the mind to tuck the huge trauma away. 
to tuck it away is absolutely, completely, 100% normal and much more likely than any other scenario. Yes. And so that, that's that exactly why wouldn't your that's what your brain's job is is to survive so if something is happening that you literally could die from and you you put it someplace else of course repressed memory is a real thing I mean and to me yeah I'm so glad to hear that that organization or that man that started that false memory whatever is now no longer certainly was Truly telling the truth, right? And yeah. Her daughter, his dad, her, you know, started this whole foundation on false memory syndrome. Um, just ter- terrible, but um, in order to protect himself because he yeah. really was molesting his kid. It worked. It worked. And it worked. Yeah, he's protecting himself because they only. How many years about- was that out? How many years was that foundation going? Oh my god, I think that I don't remember. To be honest, I believe that started in the late '80s. A long time, and now it's been dismantled. Yeah, it, it it was around for a while, quite a while. Yeah, I remember. I remember people talking about false memories or something like. Well, they've said that that was just a false memory that I somehow made it up, and I'm like, you didn't make that up. That is not made up. You, people don't make up things like that. I'm sorry. You don't see this. You don't see it on TV. Like, right. how do you make up something like that? You don't ever see that kind. That, that what happened to me. This, yeah. this, this, you don't see it anywhere. How are you going to like just make it up? You're not going to see it in a book. You're not going to see it on the TV or a movie. Um, right. Part of their deal was, oh, well, they're getting um, influenced by their therapist. So like the therapist is leading them. I never went to the therapist. So I mean, none of that stuff applied to me anyway, as far as like making it up. Also, I had no motive. I wasn't, I didn't, um, try to press charges I didn't uh there's no there couldn't it's a it's a ridiculous argument to suggest that it, yeah. it didn't happen yeah it's ridiculous. the argument is ridiculous about it so yeah and I think that's another thing that I really hope people um will resonate with on the in our community online is the fact that we believe you we do not blame you and we do not disbelieve you or only believe a part of what you have to say. We believe you. And I think that is one of the most important things for the healing path. You have to be able to to speak freely and be believed. And the thing is, I mean, I've had a few people that I, I definitely have had some male friends who have been falsely accused of like sexual harassment or things like that. I have definitely had people in my life that have experienced that. And I'm, and it makes me so angry because I'm like, when, when somebody falsely accuses someone, it just, it just makes all the rest of it so much harder for people to, you know, listen and believe and not blame. It just, ew, it just makes me so mad. So, you know, I, I can't stand that when that happens Right. Because it does happen, you know, there are times, but when somebody says, well, you know, it can go both ways, like people can make up this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but do you know how often that actually happens? Like right. one in what, 10,000, 100,000? I mean, I'm serious. It can't hardly happen. It's definitely rare. Of course, yeah, there's liars everywhere. And I lie yeah. about everything. So um, there's definitely, uh, but it's very rare. Right. And especially when you're talking about childhood trauma, like right. you said, you were, a kid, you're, you're a little 
child that right. is experiencing things that you do not, you do not, you didn't see them on TV. You didn't make it up because you didn't see an example of it on TV. You were, didn't read it in a book. You were five or six or seven or 12 or 14 or 16. Whatever those ages are, you generally are not making up that right. sort of thing because you have nothing to base it in. So right. I, I'm really glad we're ending this, the podcast on this note because I think that that is one of the biggest, um, I love that, that that got dismantled, that this false memory thing got debunked. Like that isn't even true because honestly, repressed memory is a real thing. It's a protection. Right. And, that, and then for whatever uh, an associative memory, you know, brings up, an actual memory, you know, that that's how it works. Things, you know, one thing opens the door to something else. And then all of a sudden you do remember something and you don't know when or how or, or why that, that happens, but it does. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. And thank you for talking to us a little bit more about, you know, the multiple, dis, uh, multiple personality disorder or what is called dissociative. Yeah. Dis Identity, dissociative, I, dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, disorder. Okay, <laughs> I'm like I've been in some some support groups with that as well, and I have a, another friend. Um, but what they, we just call it DID. It's just DID. Yeah, the initial DID. So okay, so if somebody is looking or seeking out, they should put that in their their Google search because <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I still can't. I still struggle to spell disassociative sometimes. I don't know why. That's a hard word. That's a big mouthful. (laughs) Well, I I can't thank you enough. Once again, this has been amazing, and I I really um, appreciate your candor, your vulnerability, sharing all. And I really hope that um, as we open our online community later this month, that that uh, people will get to um, experience you and you them and that we can open that safe space for people to share. Um, thank you so much, Carrie. You're just you're just a, a wonderful person and human being and just have been absolutely marvelous to have on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. You bet. Talk soon. All right. <laughs> Bye. That's it for today's episode of The Jam Broberg Show. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you know anyone who would benefit from hearing our show, it would mean the world to me if you wouldn't mind sharing one of our episodes with them. If you believe in what we are doing here on the show and would be interested in becoming a patron, head over to our website at thejambrobergshow.com slash Patreon. It takes a lot to put on a show like this, and your support would be deeply appreciated. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Jam Broberg Show and my personal account at Janny Broberg, J-A-N-I-B-R-O-B-E-R-G. And by signing up for our newsletter over at www.thejambrobergfoundation.org. We are doing everything we can to help survivors of child abuse and their families heal and get access to resources so they can all reclaim their happy childhood. All of this can be found in our show notes. I'd like to thank our team. Senior producer, Austin Tanner. Executive producer, Chris Whiteside. Audio supervisor and editor, Eric Osborne. Co-host and trauma consultant, 
Dave Markell, Media Supervisor, Malcolm Walker. This is Mama Jan signing off, over and out on two. Bye-bye.